Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B. in Atlanta. I'm Lois Reitzes, and this is City Lights. What does it mean to be American? That's a question Deval Patrick asks each guest on his new podcast series. The former governor of Massachusetts interviews a wide range of artists, activists, and thinkers on being American, and he joins us later this hour. First, there is a saying that cooking is love made visible. We're going to meet a 12-year-old from Lithonia who has expressed his love through cooking for over half of his young life. The beauty of Tivan Mills' cooking will be highly visible as he is among the dozen new talented young bakers who will appear on the Food Network show Kids Baking Championship. Tivan Mills joins us now via Zoom with his mother, Sarah Sorrendo. Welcome to City Lights. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. Devon, please tell us when did you learn to cook? I learned to cook when I was like six or seven years old. And what were some of the first things that you prepared? The very first thing that I learned how to make was noodles and macaroni and cheese. Aha! Did your mother know that you were using the stove? My mother was at work, and I only used it when she was at work. <laughs> so your mom did not know that you were using the stove when she was at work? No, she didn't. Hmm. Did you ever have any mishaps, anything s serious happen that made you think, Maybe I shouldn't be operating the stove or the oven at my age? Um, no, because I was very careful because I know I was not supposed to be using the stove. Well, that was very thoughtful of you to start cooking while your mom was at work. What made you take up cooking? Well, my mom had two jobs, and she barely had time to cook for us. So I just took it upon myself to start cooking. 
Sarah, what did you think about Yvonne's interest in cooking? Well, my interest in his cooking at first, it was very amazing because I used to come home very tired at night and then just say to them, did you guys eat? They would say yes, and I would go right into my bed. But that, that specific day when I came home that night and I saw macaroni and cheese with ground beef, that is what blew my mind. And I started asking, who cooked this food? Devon is not answering. My bigger boy said, it's Devon. I said, who cooked this food? Devon. I said, Devon, who cooked this food? I mean, the macaroni and ground beef. Who did it? Devon answered me. I said, Devon, this is ground beef. Who taught you? How did you cook that? Why did you cook it? Devon, did you really cook that? He's like, yes, mommy. So I started eating. And he said, mommy, I put some of the food in the fridge so you can get to go to work. And I started eating. And while I'm eating, I'm still making noise. But I, in my heart, I am dancing like, oh, my God, this food tastes so good. So, Devon, how did you learn to cook it? Mommy, I just, I just learned through, through the internet. And um, I cook it. I was like, oh, my God, Devon. You can cook. <laughs> and so thoughtful. You mentioned us, Devon. You have a brother or a sister? A brother. Ah, uh-huh. And how old is he? He's 19 years old now. Okay. So you were cooking for the adults, or at least those much older than you in the house? Yes, I was. I read that you spend a lot of your free time online looking up baking videos. Why are John Cannell and Laura Vitale two of your favorite chefs? It's my favorite because, um, I don't know, I feel like they're just very, very good bakers and very good chefs, and they know what they're doing in the kitchen. It's easy for you to follow what they suggest? Yeah, it is. What? It's your favorite meal. Is there a favorite meal you have to create? My favorite meal is steak and probably mashed potatoes. Mmm, sounds delicious. I would think that as a cook, you also must shop for your own food. Do you do that or do you give your mom or your brother a list? I give my mom the list and she always goes goes and buys it. (laughs) (laughs) Sarah, are you still working two jobs? No, ma'am. I'm working one job because I realized, like, I needed to be there for him. Because, you know, he was taking up a job on his own I didn't really like. Because I would, like, tell him, Devon, you're not the man in the house. You are just a child. You cannot be preparing dinner for me you cannot be preparing lunch for me you cannot be preparing breakfast for everybody in the house waking up every day and doing that you cannot do that you're a child of one and it just become his hobby well and clearly Devon would you say it was also a way of showing your love yes it was a hobby and also something that brought joy to me how did you register that joy? What made you smile? Seeing the reaction on people's face when they eat it or just while I'm cooking it. Mm. 
Now, competitions are demanding, and they can be very pressured for the participants. Devon, why did you want to be on the Food Network show Kids Baking Championship? Because it had they had two of my favorite bakers and chefs, and also it I have a shot of winning twenty five thousand dollars, and baking is my passion. Wow! If you were to win the grand prize of twenty five thousand dollars, have you thought about what you would do with your winnings? I haven't thought about that, but I honestly, what I like to do, I just like to go with the flow. Yeah. That's, that is very wise. Concentrate on what's needed of you at the moment. I'm curious about your audition. How did you audition for the championship? I signed up, and then when I made it to, like, the top 50 or so, I went on Zoom, and we had, like, not really a bake-off, but we were on Zoom, and we baked, and they decided, like, the top 12. So did you have to make any particular meals or bake specific desserts to show off your skills? Well, I baked a vanilla cake, some potashu, and lemon curd. Lemon curd? Mm, That sounds delicious. Before each competition, are you told what the challenge will be or Are you surprised? Do they just give you the challenge on the spot? On the spot, they just give us us what we have to bake, and then we have to run to the back. And we just have to think really fast. Can you tell us about some of the challenges? The first challenge, I had to make a mini cheesecake. Aha. And can you tell us about your style? Did you add lemon or berries? Well, my style was just to add like exotic fruits. Not really exotic, but just like add more flavor. I read that one challenge celebrating Animal Planet's Puppy Bowl has each baker paired with an adorable, adoptable puppy. And the baker must create a birthday cake that envisions the puppy's life after adoption. Were you part of that challenge? Yes, I was a part of that challenge. Ooh, I love dogs, and I was hoping you could tell us about it. I can't really talk about much about that one. Okay. I, I guess I wondered, was the puppy nearby while you were trying to bake? Uh, yes, it was up front. <laughs> Did the puppy try to eat the ingredients? No, they were separate from us. For the first time on the show, parents were allowed to be backstage and watch their kids during filming. Sarah, what was it like for you watching Devon compete on television? Oh, my God. It was, I would say it was amazing, but at the same time, it was nerve-wracking. I felt like I was on a on a never-ending roller coaster ride. One minute it's a bumpy road, one minute it is sweet, and that that's what it was like. It wasn't easy. No, I'm sure not. 
Devon, what was it like for you having your mom watch while you were competing? Um, it was amazing because I felt like like um, a bit safe that I know that she's watching me. And I don't know, it's just like amazing. Yeah, mother has that kind of presence. Do you think cooking or baking is something you want to continue in your adult life, possibly for a career? That baking is um, the career that I want. And hopefully in the future, I would like to have a cafe bakery. Well, Devon Mills, congratulations on being chosen for the group competing on the Food Network's Kids Baking Championship. And whatever the outcome, we think you already are a winner. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me here. Oh, we can't wait to watch. Sarah, you have a lot to be proud of. And thank you for being with us, too. Thank you so much for having us. Sarah Sorhendo is the mother of 12-year-old chef Devon Mills. You can watch Devon compete for the title of Kids Baking Champion on the Food Network starting December 28th. Next, we'll hear from a grown-up chef also based here in Atlanta, India has long been associated with vibrant colors. Its festivals, traditional fashion, interior design, and architecture all display a wide range of vivid colors. That celebration of brilliant colors also extends to Indian food, as Chef Asha Gomez conveys in her new book, I cook in color, bright flavors from my kitchen and around the world. This chef is with us now via Zoom. Asha Gomez, welcome back to City Lights. Louis, thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be with you. Likewise. Now, the title of this new book is very enticing. Please tell us how do you cook in color? How do you not cook in color? <laughs> <laughs> you know, for me, cooking is really, it's such a visual aesthetic first, isn't it? So my menu happens at a market first. I never plan a menu and go to the market. I literally go to the market, see what's available, what's fresh. But it's also just the color of what we see globally when it comes to globally inspired food. I Cook in Color is such a love story to my family, my friends, and especially my son. It's a reflection on all the countries that we've traveled to, all the amazing kitchens that I've been fortunate enough to cook in. And it, it kind of takes me out of that box, Louis. You know, as a, as a first-generation immigrant chef, I'm generally boxed into cooking the cuisine of my ancestral kitchen, which is my mother's kitchen or my grandmother's kitchen. Meanwhile, I left India 35 years ago. I've called the U.S. home now for 35 years. I've traveled the world over, eaten in kitchens around the world. And I Cook in Color is really a reflection of, 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 it's the sum total of my life experiences and what I put on a plate. 
Indeed. Your previous cookbook, My Two Souths, contains recipes that combine the influence of Kerala, your native town in southern India, and your adopted home of Atlanta. What other influences specifically do we encounter in this new collection of recipes? So uh, I cook in color is very much a reflection of how I cook in my kitchen today. My kitchen is very globally inspired. You know, on any given night, I could be in Thailand making a Thai papaya salad. I could be in the south of France. I could be in Rome, Italy, where I learned how to make a quail ragu, or my mother's kitchen in the south of India making a fish head curry, or here in my kitchen in the American South. And so it really is a reflection of how I cook today. And my kitchen is very globally inspired. Mm-hmm. You're right that eating the rainbow is good for our health. How so? So I think just the vibrance of color that's all around us, first of all, the freshness of everything that you get when you're eating things that, you know, you're a quick stir fry or great salads. I have great salad recipes in the cookbook as well. It's just, you know, juices that you can have. It makes you feel good. I mean, not just from a visual perspective, but I think drinking and eating color makes you feel good. The book cover illustration is a gorgeous display of vegetables. Is this complicated to make? Not the cover. It's not. It's roasting vegetables. I tell people all the time, you give me a vegetable, I'm probably going to find a way to roast it. So it's so simple, you know, putting a platter, especially like this time of year, with all the amazing pumpkins and squashes that we have in season right now, it's literally cut things up, put it on a sheet pan, and you can spice each individual vegetable with you know, spice it up differently. Like on one, I will put cardamom and honey. On another one, I'll do black pepper. On another one, I'll crush some cumin. And it all just goes onto a sheet pan and roast for a few minutes. And you have a showstopper on your table that's delicious and healthy and good for you. Mm. Now, the recipes range from those you describe as easy to very sophisticated. Did you have in mind a particular level of expertise for readers of this cookbook? You know, Louis, when I wrote my first cookbook, I Cook in Color, I wasn't very well versed in writing recipes. And I think so much of the way I approached my two souths was through the lens of a restaurant chef. And I think with I Cook in Color, I really honed into just being a home cook. And every recipe in I Cooking Color was tested and retested in my kitchen with my family, with my kid. And so I really kept in my mind's eye the home cook and the ease at which a home cook could make these recipes. And so for me, I Cooking Color, I think I became a better recipe writer just from experience of writing one cookbook already. And I think it's probably my best work yet because I try to simplify it as much as I possibly can based on how it is I like to cook at home on any given weeknight. I want it to be a one pot wonder, you know, everything going into one dish and simplifying things. So 
I feel the recipes may be just a, that much easier in eye picking color than maybe they were in My Two Souths. I mean, My Two Souths is a brilliant cookbook too, but I feel like eye cooking color is more relatable because I changed as a writer and how I wrote a recipe during this process. I think I encountered an example of how you coax us away from feeling intimidated in the entry for wild boar and poke salad lasagna. And, <laughs> and I have to tell you, Asha, it helped me that you added a reference to the song Poke Salad Annie because that was one of my favorite songs as a teenager. Would you talk about how you adapted this recipe for the less experienced cook? So, you know, if you can't find the poke, I mean, you can use so many other greens in this recipe. You could use collards if you want. You could use spinach if you want. You could really, there's a multitude of greens that you can use. And the entire cookbook, you know, I'm telling you, listen, it, take a recipe, use it as a foundation, and then take what's in your kitchen and have fun and play with it. Don't be intimidated. If, if a recipe calls for five ingredients and you have only four, it's still going to be delicious. You know, get creative. Use something out of the box. Just being inspired by the base recipe that you've been given. So that's a prime example of, you know, you can't find a particular green. Use another green. It's going to be just as delicious. And what about the wild boar? So if you can't get wild boar, I mean, there's so many gaming meats that you can use. I mean, if you can't get boar, use pork. If you can't, if pork is not going to be good enough, use, if you want turkey, use turkey. You literally could substitute with any number of different meats that you want. Nice salmon salad and crying tiger grilled beef salad look gorgeous on the page, but those don't seem at all difficult to make. They're not. It's as simple as, you know, making a quick dressing at home, grilling it off, roasting it in the oven. And then, you know, with, with the knee salad, I, I talk about how my influence in my mother's kitchen has always been, you know, we finish dishes in Kerala. We temper oil with some mustard seeds and some curry leaves. It's usually just splattered on top of whatever it is that you have cooked. And so you have this gorgeous slab of salmon and you roast it and you pull it out and you temper some mustard oil on it. And voila, you know, you have something that's so beautiful and it's easy and simple and it's it's decadent for like an afternoon with the ladies or an evening where you want to have a light dinner so yes and the same thing with the crying salad it's all about making simple things that you're not used to so you make a dressing that you're not otherwise used to making or you make a thai inspired dressing like for the thai, uh, for the beef salad and it's the simple things that you can bring into your kitchen that are globally inspired that you might not otherwise be familiar with. But also in the book, write a lot about where you can get access to these things. I mean, in today's world, we're literally three days away from getting anything at our doorstep that we feel that we can't find. If you feel that you're in some part 
of the world where you can't find a particular ingredient. I mean, you look it up in three days, it can show show up at your doorstep. So I'm hoping that I've given enough resources for people to find the ingredients needed to make these dishes. Yes. I'm curious why the tiger is crying. He's not crying. It just sounded really beautiful. He's, <laughs> he, he's crying because he's crying tears of joy. It's so delicious. Oh. <laughs> now, you, you point out that Thai cooking is especially well suited to those with a busy lifestyle, yet it's also quite sumptuous and nutritious. What especially appeals to you about Thai cooking? You know, it's so rare that I see Thai cooking. I have a very dear friend. She's like my sister, Faye Poon, who is from Bangkok, Thailand. And I have learned so much from her and, you know, through her cooking influences in my kitchen. I've never used, seen her use a shred of oil on anything. Like literally all all her cooking starts off with water and just tons of herbs. You know, it's cilantro, cilantro root, it's palm sugar, it's lemon, it's lime, it's green chili, it's garlic. And it's always starts off so light, but it's just full of herb. And it's, it's the thing with Thai cuisine is you have tang you have heat you have sweet it's like this umami of flavors like your palate can experience everything in one dish yes and uh, i look forward to making that crying tiger grilled beef salad i'm glad the tiger isn't crying because (laughs) he's going extinct or anything like that (laughs) ultimately you write This book is about cognizant cooking. How do you define that? So for me, this, when I say cognizant cooking, it's about being conscious, right? It's being conscious about, let's see, the origins of a recipe, having reverence and respect for the origins of a recipe. You know, you can take that recipe and make it your own, but it's still having reverence for where it came from. just being in that moment, right? Being present when you're working with ingredients, enjoying the beauty of that ingredient, and then enjoying another culture. To me, that is being completely aware of what it is you're cooking in your kitchen and what it is you end up putting in your mouth. Atlanta chef Asha Gomez. Her recent book is I Cook in Color, Bright Flavors from My Kitchen and Around the World. In a moment, former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick talks about his new podcast series, Being American. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. Among the myriad of podcasts available now, a recent edition is outstanding. Former Governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, has launched a new podcast series on what it means to be American in 2020 and beyond. He's with us now via Zoom. Governor Patrick, welcome to City Lights. Lois, thank you so much. It's, a, it's an honor 
to be on the program with you. I'm a big fan. Oh, my goodness. Now I want that on my epitaph. (laughs) But I'm not ready for the epitaph yet. That's the way. Please tell us why you wanted to create Being American. Well, it seems to me that in these divided and divisive times, there are conversations uh, about common values that are enormously difficult to have in a campaign and, um, and harder and harder to have in politics, sadly. But there is so much uncommon wisdom I found out and about, not just from the famous, but the as yet discovered. Many folks doing, you know, as my grandmother would say, all the good they can in all the ways they can with all the time they have. And they have insights, I think, into where we are as a country and where we're going and how we can begin, I think, over time to see how much of what uh, ails us from community to community and individual to individual is in common. And if that's so, some of the solutions that we have to think about, I think, um, can also be thought about as unifying themselves. Yeah. Many of your political colleagues have pivoted to doing podcasts. Former First Lady Michelle Obama, David Axelrod, just to name two. I was wondering if you spoke with any friends or colleagues before you embarked on being American. I did, in particular to David Axelrod, who, unlike me, has gotten the hang of doing uh, podcasts. I'm still trying to find my... uh, Radio voice, I guess. In fact, oh. I, I said to the producer, if you can dub in the voice of James Earl Jones, that is, <laughs> that'll do it. But yeah, I, th- I think, you know, I was, I, I was reluctant to come to the idea of a, of a podcast. As you said in the opening, there is, there's such a wealth of content out there. And, and people are getting their information and their commentary in lots of different ways from lots of different um, voices. And there's a lot to like about that. So I wondered whether a conversation that seemed as abstract as this one would be um, of interest to people. Some of our guests have just been fascinating. And I've learned a ton and, and I have left feeling with a lot to, that I had a lot to think about and a lot to hope for. Well, you're a wonderful listener, which is always the mark of a great interviewer. It's nice of you to say. Ours is an arts and culture show, and I was especially impressed not only with the artists you have featured, such as Misty Copeland and Herbie Hancock, but also your deep personal involvement with the arts. Before engaging with your podcast series, I listened back to the eulogy you gave at Ted Kennedy's memorial, which had everyone laughing, and revealed your arts enthusiasm, one the late senator shared. Would you tell that story you told? Oh, gracious. You mean about how he crashed our our, our lunch? Yes. <laughs> I hadn't been in office long um, as governor, and I had run for nothing else before. But I had met Ted Kennedy years before when I was uh, nominated by Bill Clinton to head the Civil Rights Division. And I admired him and admired his, his politics, really from 
a long time, you know, as Democrats often do and have. We got to be more personal friends on the journey to my own election. He gave me a lot of time and, uh, and he stayed out of it um, as he advises all Democratic elected officials uh, to do in a contested Democratic uh, primary. Some really great advice, which I have followed half the time, I think. But he's, he's a wonderful storyteller, and he's fun and interesting. He's, he was so curious about people, as is his widow. And he and I and Diane and Vicki had spent time together. And, and we have a place in Western Massachusetts, not far from where, from Tanglewood, which is the summer home of the Boston Symphony and the Boston Pops. And he was coming out for a concert. And we uh, invited him and Vicky to come for lunch after the concert. And they said, well, why don't you come and sit with us at the concert? So we did. And then he, he, call, he called a couple of, I don't know, maybe three or four days before and said, would you mind if I invited two guest artists, two Broadway icons to join us for lunch at your home? And I said, sure, that would be terrific. And I think he added somebody else before the time was Anyway, we get home to lunch and we're sitting down. All of a sudden, this total stranger comes in with a, an electric keyboard and starts <laughs> to set up. And, uh, and we all said, what's going on? And it turns out this was the principal pianist from the symphony whom uh, Ted Kennedy had invited to come and play so that we could all sing Broadway tunes after lunch. And so we did all afternoon. We had a wonderful time. But, it, but Vicky was mortified. Uh, that he would just keep inviting people over to our home without uh, first asking us. <laughs> it sounded like something out of the movie, You Can't Take It With You. The doorbell <laughs> kept ringing and, you know, there was the conductor, Keith Lockhart, and it, you know, I pictured the Boston Symphony or the Boston Pops at your door, but the four of you singing show tunes for hours after that, just speaks volumes. Well, you know, I would say that in the company of Brian Stokes Mitchell, <laughs> one of the guests, I, as much as possible, let him do the singing. But uh, I think at Ted's funeral, I told a truth with, which Vicky knew, which is that Brian Stokes Mitchell is what Ted thought he sounded like <laughs> when he was singing. Never mind. <laughs> My father was a musician. Yes, he played with Herbie Hancock. He did. He was, a, he was a jazz musician. He was one of the founding members of the Sun Ra Orchestra, which is a very avant-garde uh, group. He played with them in Chicago and New York and around the world for 30 years or so. But he played with just about everyone. When we were collecting his papers after he died, there were... Um, handwritten notes from Duke Ellington on his scores when he played with Ellington, which was among other things we donated to the Berkeley School of Music in, in Boston. A recent episode of your podcast features the ballerina Misty Copeland. This was riveting. She was the first African-American woman to be promoted to principal dancer for American Ballet Theater. What struck you most about her rise to success? Her bravery, I think. It's obvious, I suppose, to, to anyone who is interested in dance that her skill is extraordinary. 
her grace combined with her athleticism. She is a show-stopping talent and so much fun. And there's so much joy that she exudes when you're sitting in the audience watching her perform, which I've had an opportunity to, to do maybe twice in my, uh, in my life. But it's not until you really appreciate how much, uh, not just how much work goes into becoming a principal, but how staked the odds are against you if you are Black particularly in classical ballet, not all dance, but classical ballet. And Christy talks about this, Ms. Copeland talks about this in the podcast, you know, what constitutes a body type for classical ballet and who gets to say and why and the presumptions against you. And of course, then she started, I think, in her teens. Yeah, she said she didn't start till she was 13. Right, right. And here's something that I don't think we touched on the podcast, but she was on point three months after starting her uh, ballet lessons. It takes years for most trained dancers to uh, go up on point. Three months. It's extraordinary. She surely was a prodigy. I loved in that episode where you mentioned the governor, Doug Wilder, introducing you as the first African-American governor of Massachusetts. And he said, you quote him saying, being first doesn't mean a thing unless there's a second. And the pressure that was on Misty Copeland for being the first to achieve what she has as prima ballerina, you'd think would be burdensome. But in your conversation, she carries it off with the same grace she shows on stage. That, I'm, so, I'm so glad to hear you say that came through. I, I think um, she was very clear about the pressure she was under or the high expectations she had or it's actually a combination of high expectations of herself by herself and low expectations around her, that there were limits on the expectations other had, others had that she would have to surmount. But I think there was a, a part of her conversation, where, of that conversation, where she talked about the aftermath within the company of the George Floyd videotaped killing and how intimate and supportive she discovered in some ways her colleagues were of her. So it was, a, I think, in some ways an auspicious time to be having that kind of conversation with her about her rise to this height. I loved that what came out of that conversation also was how being a good observer served her so beautifully, although the way she told it, she was so painfully shy. People thought she was mute. Mm, how about that? How about that? But, you know, this is a, an inartful thing to say to a radio host, but I, th I think to myself sometimes, how rich is our experience when we stop talking and just listen? Listen in the conversations that we're having with each other, but also just listening to others interact. Just what you learn, how you, um, it's not all content. Some of it is 
tone and touch. Some of it is grace and meanness. But you learn things about human interaction, which I think make life richer. And I think that's what Misty was trying to get across. Former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick discussing his new podcast, Being American. We'll be back with more of our conversation after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to more of my conversation with the former governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick. He has a new podcast series, Being American regarding this year's reckoning with racial injustice and tragedy. Here's what Governor Patrick responded to my question about how those who've been oppressed can still feel proud of being American. You know, this is the only nation in human history organized around a handful of civic ideals. You think about that for a minute. It wasn't geography or religion or language um, that formed this country. It was a handful of ideas that over time and through struggle, you, you can summarize as equality, opportunity, and fair play. And for that, at the end of the day, as flawed as we are, And especially when we are trying to close the gap between those civic ideals and our reality, that's why we're in envy to the world. That is our strength. That's why we're an optimistic country and why we're always asking ourselves whether the thing, or ought to be, whether things uh, the way they are are the way they have to be. And I think if you are outcast and excluded and despised in this country, or anywhere else in the world, this country holds out the hope that there can be a place for you. And I think actually one of the great challenges right now, and one of the most exciting ones, is that so many people across differences are beginning to make those kinds of demands on our own country again and on each other. And I think that's a very, that's a very promising moment. Hmm. You talk about finding common values during uncommon times when you open the podcast. Did you happen to see David Brooks' tribute to Mark Shields this morning? 
I didn't this morning. I love his I love his writing. I'll have to I'll have to go check that out. It's a beautiful tribute he wrote in this morning's Times. And part of what he brings out is the beauty, the joy of having differing points of view and sharing the same values. Ultimately, the, the civility and respect for each other's beliefs. Do you have hope for that in our society as it is now? Well, look, we, we, uh, I have to have hope because what we have right now is not sustainable. And I, I, I have hope not just um, for, you know, not just because I'm an optimistic person, Lois, but because I've had lots and lots of reasons given me over time and experiences to be hopeful. You know, I'm a, I'm a kid from, the, from welfare on the South Side of Chicago, and I've, I've had extraordinary opportunities. I am also aware that for, you know, every kid like me who got a scholarship to college and, you know, got to travel and, and work in so many different settings with so many different sorts of people, that there are dozens just like me, just as ambitious, just as creative, um, just as determined, who don't. And as I said, I think there is so much work yet to do, but it is not true that we have been standing still since our founding. And I think that's one of our biggest challenges in this country is to, is to acknowledge imbalance, the extraordinary progress we have made, much of it in my lifetime, and at the same time, how much progress remains um, before us. I've had more conversations with people in all kinds of settings who started out expecting me to be one thing and finding out that there was more to me than the cartoon version they had. And, you know, if you think about it, to me, you know, the fact that we are as divided is less troubling to me in some ways than the fact that it's so easy to divide us. And I think the reason it's easy to divide us is that we don't know each other. We don't have much more in most cases, many cases, than the cartoon version we get of each other in the media or social media or what have you. And uh, frankly, as a footnote, it's one of the reasons why I feel so strongly about the importance of universal national service, domestic or military. We need ways for people to be together and work together and know each other past the one dimension. Yeah, you bring that out in the episode so far. A recurring theme is the importance of community. And and you've talked about growing up in a multi-generational household on a block where kids played outside and everyone looked out for each other. How do we find community now? You know, the community we need isn't, it may be informed by past experience, but as I think about it, it's not about nostalgia, which is to say the the lesson from the from the South Side that I got from the old ladies in hats in church and the folks on the stoop who who treated you like you were theirs is that um, well two two lessons really one is that community is understanding you have a stake in your neighbor's dreams and struggles just as they do in yours and that um, 
Secondly, it's up to you, all of you, all of us, to do what we can in our time to leave things better for those who came behind us. Those are ancient lessons. Every single one of us learned those from our grandparents. But somehow or other, we, we sort of bleached them out, made them off limits in our politics, in our commerce. And I think in lots of ways, these questions are being put again and behaviors are being changed in politics and in business, try to be a part of that change. The range of guests you have is wide. You speak with artists and creatives, politicians, writers, activists. How do you and your producers select your guests? Oh, Lois, you really going to ask me about the sausage making um, <laughs> <laughs> right on the air? It's people I have encountered who have moved me, who've had, you know, some, some I know, but many I, I don't, but who are thought-provoking. You know, if you ask uh, an open-ended question, we'll, we'll fill it up and take you in, in different directions. And that's, uh, that's fun. If anything, you know, as a part of learning how to podcast, my producer keeps saying, you know, you have to inject yourself more when my instinct is just to ask the question, sit back and listen and nod. And I think, you know, I mean, we have, we have some folks on deck, James Taylor, for example, a marvelous uh, activist from LGBTQ plus activist from Florida, I think is yet to uh, yet to air, and some other folks who said they want to be on, but we haven't been able to get their schedules aligned, which is another part of the you know the juggling of it all. But I, I will say, as we go along, presuming we we keep going, I'm going to be looking for more people who are not yet famous, who are not yet known, because I, I think. You know, we place so much emphasis in this country on celebrity, and there is wisdom everywhere, and common sense often <laughs> more present, if, if, I may, if I may use the term, in common people, uh, than some of what passes for that from the well-known. I think that's very admirable. And part of what emerges from people who are immensely accomplished, that you've had Misty Copeland, Herbie Hancock, is that they were once young people forging their own paths. And I wondered, for young people who are trying to forge their own paths in professions where they don't necessarily see themselves represented. What advice you would give? Let your imagination soar. And for many people, for many good reasons, uh, we are, we're reluctant um, to really let our imaginations soar. We're so braced for disappointment and obstacles but I, you know, I, I had an experience, I won't tell the whole story, but um, between college and law school, the first chance to travel outside uh, of the United States, and I, I wanted to go to Africa, and I did. And I had a traveling fellowship to spend a year, and I got an opportunity, I thought, to work on a UN project in Sudan. And I landed in Cairo, and I hitchhiked from Cairo to Khartoum, which is about 1,200 miles. I found my way to the office in Khartoum of the fellow I've been writing to for many months and learned there 
that he had left the week before for two years in Long Beach, California, and said nothing to his office about my coming or what I was supposed to do. And this is before the internet and cell phones and all that. There was, I was on my own. And after talking my way onto the project, they sent me out to Darfur for six months where there was no phone or mail service, actually no airport or train. That's a whole other story. But I figured it out. And when I, when I figured out that I could figure it out, Lois, that, that I could learn the language, I could learn how to make friends, I could learn how to feed myself and amuse myself and get the job done, it's enormously empowering. But it is taking that kind of chance and learning from the setbacks and surmounting them that I think gives people, I think, the self-confidence to build a career that is meaningful. I was wondering, as you ask each of your guests, what does it mean to be American? Is it chutzpah on my part to ask you, Governor Patrick? <laughs> no, it's not. I, I, look, I think being American is about aspiration. I think it's about being able to imagine a different place for yourself and your family, and then reach for it. And I think that if that is what being American is, and it has been for me and for others, and it is not for enough others, then we have to ask each other, what does our patriotism demand of us, our citizenship demand of us, to assure that that is, in fact, the reality for, for everyone everywhere? And I think that raises a whole bunch of other really big questions. The former governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, his new podcast, Being American, is available now on all major streaming platforms. You can find more information on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. City Lights is our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Marley was dead to begin with. A new dance film streaming from Terminus Modern Ballet Theater. City Lights producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. I would so love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to member-supported 90.1 W-A-B-E. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. 
it can be a spur of the moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wab.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.